True terror is a language and a vision, said author Don DeLillo. There is a deep narrative structure to terrorist acts, and they infiltrate and alter consciousness in ways that writers used to aspire to. Well, if terror is a language and a vision, then please God, so is goodness and life. And I have a real hope that I can infiltrate and alter consciousness in ways that we all aspire to. Because I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project. I am sitting here with the international spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron, Yishai Fleischer. He is a podcaster, social media influencer, holy troller of the enemies of Israel on all forms of media, and a dear friend. Yishai, it's great to see you in my hometown here. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I came into studio with you here, uh, into your den. This is indeed my den. People can't see it, but this is where I go to get away from it all. That's right. You can, I'll just leave that vague so people can picture what it might actually look like. <laughs> so we're here to talk about a number of things, but more than anything else, we're here to talk about war. And not exactly the war that many people, I assume, hear when I say that term, since Tzahal, the Israeli armor, is even now smashing the enemies of Israel in Gaza. And please, God, they should not only be successful, but God should watch over them and show them revealed miracles. Um, but what we're specifically, specifically, excuse me, here to speak about um, is a different battlefront. Because I happen to know, a little bird has informed me, that you're working on a book which in many ways is the product of decades of spokesmanship, communication, debate, discussion on almost every platform conceivable. And it's a book about what you call narrative war. So I guess the first question is, what is narrative war? Well... I'll answer that question, but beforehand, the, the term itself is has been used in different ways. People call it psychological warfare. Other people call it political warfare. Uh, other people call it, um, um, I don't know, uh, information warfare. And sometimes they say PR, and sometimes they say Israel's bad at PR, that kind of thing. Propaganda. Propaganda. They have all these terms for it. The The Russian term. For part of, of this is called maskarovka, which means like the hiding, the mask. It's for the same word as mask. It's which they are certainly masters of doing. They are absolute masters. How they, can you be culturally completely shameless and yet so good at hiding things? Uh, th- that's awesome. You see, you see that? <laughs> They're really awesome. I'm already by confused. Way, by the way, uh, uh, look at the jihad. Excellent at attacking and bloodletting and then immediately playing the victim. Which I have to say there have been several Eretz Nehederet episodes recently just roasting the BBC jihad nexus. And for considering it's not their native language, English, they've been fairly impressive on that front. That's right. They're really good at it. They, they have <laughs> done some brilliant pieces. But so, so I, I came up with this term narrative war and because it's really about narratives. It's really about the narrative that, that you're trying to get into people's minds. In general, I've come to the conclusion that people live according to whatever narrative is in their head about themselves, about God, about, about this earth, about life. So narrative war is an effort to get other people to have the narrative that you want them to have. So I may want to paint Israel as a colonialist, as an occupier, as a foreigner, as a white colonialist. And so therefore, I'm going to create a tree of narratives that's going to show that Israel is actually a product of Europe and is, and is white and, and look at their guns as opposed to the Palestinian donkey and, and olive trees. I'm going to create a whole narrative that's going to fit into your mind. And then I want to say, well, Israel is taking my land. Israel is a, is a, is a warrior that's, uh, that's, that's foreign to this land and is now trying to 
uh, destroy my 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 indigenous life here and so i've created a narrative and if i could tie it into other narratives that work in your head that that works perfectly well so that was an example but the point is is that narrative war is a way to besmirch your enemy to create the image that you want for your enemy and to create about about yourself an image also you're creating narratives in people's head and it's a much more accurate term than all those other terms why, why so? I mean, give me a little bit more about what you mean specifically. Because you're not saying propaganda. You're not saying psychological psyops. Right. What's so specifically powerful about the term and narrative? All, all those other terms are accurate, mm -hmm. uh, but they're not broad enough. And, and they, they don't... Uh, the word narrative is a, is a word that's out there in campus and, and in intellectual circles. It's a buzzword even. It's a buzzword. I mean, anybody who's listening to the show right now knows that I've been pursuing the path of narrative therapy for a nation through the Jewish story for, for almost two decades. Sure. So I empathize. Sure. And, and the Torah, by the way, is a narrative. It's a narrative. It's, it's a powerful narrative about what Israel, where it started, where it's going, what, it, what its goals are. And that so what you don't mean is false stories. Oftentimes when people say narrative today, um, there's a sort of more than a small dose of that postmodern relativism, which is that you have your narrative, I have my narrative, and the implication is that neither one is real. But if you're going to tell me that the Torah, which I agree with you, fits into this narrative structure, then we're not speaking just about uh, fairy tales and your personal subjective perspective. That's right. Uh, part of it is, and part of it isn't. Meaning to say, narrative is a big. That's why I like that term. It's 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 a much bigger term. Narrative could be very real. Uh, narrative is, let's call it the software. It's the software that runs your your mind and your your whole direction. So jihadism is a is a narrative. It's a, it's a software for your uh, for your person. And Judaism or various forms of it is a narrative. Uh, and narrative can be used as a tool. Narrative is what wakes us up in the morning. Why do you wake up at six in the morning and you and you, you, you go early to pray? Why is that? Because you believe that's right. What does that mean? You believe that's right because you have an image of yourself and what is right, what is good in this world. You have a whole image of you know the, the kind of life that you want to lead. We, we need an image inside to, to run ourselves. So I'll, I'll offer you this, is that my experience is that stories or, or narratives, as you're <clears> calling them, are the most effective means that humanity has ever found for tying together information, experience, and value systems. Right. Like you're saying, we're all trying to navigate the world. Information's flooding in at all the times and more now today than it ever has been, right? Well, that was, um, I was going to get to exactly that, that we're also living in the age of narrative. Right. Well, I, I think we've always lived there, but I want to just be specific. I think that information has become unmanageable. It's just simply too much. There's a deluge, right? And, and there's also experience the edges of experience have been blurred meaning once upon a time to experience something you had to go there now we live in a world where you can at least think you're experiencing things by clicking on a post that's and right seeing the but images that clicking is also when you click or let's say you click a like you're also saying this is my narrative yeah. or i share this narrative. now let me give you a, a tiny example that happened yesterday okay just yesterday so we're recording this the day after a big rally in the united states uh for israel Saying that it was the largest rally of American Jewry in history. Right. And there may have been up to 300,000 people there. I don't know the actual numbers, but it was massive. Guess on which story you're telling. That's huh? right. That really depends on that. So I posted a picture uh, on, on, on Twitter. And it, you know what? It was one of these moments where uh, it was one of those moments where I sat back for a second. I'm like, what's the caption for this? Mm. What's the caption for this picture? It was a picture of this massive, uh, like, uh, 
um, a sea of for, Jews, Forrest Gump type moment. You know right, what I mean? Sure. Like it's like like a sea of of uh, at the mall in Washington D.C. And I thought to myself, what what can I say here? What can I say here? And Hakadosh Baruch Hu, God put it into my mind. Really, it was an interesting thing. I felt sometimes you could feel a drop come down from the heavens. Sure. And I wrote one word in Twitter. I wrote one word. I wrote mishpacha. Mm. That's all I wrote. That was it. Which means family for family, those who don't right? know. Everybody knows if you're in New York or mishpacha, right? Right. Mishpacha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote this word. In fact, actually, I thought about that. The word mishpacha is in Hebrew, it's mishpacha, but in English, mishpacha is just as strong of a word. There's even it's, a, it's broader in many right. ways. It's a bigger embrace. Right. It's 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 like la familia. It's like you know. It's a. It's well, a, I think what it does is it allows you to embrace people who, in many ways, actually don't belong to your specific clan. It's a declaration of tribe. Right. They're not necessarily wearing the same stuff. They don't even necessarily pray the same ways. But we're mishpacha. We're mishpacha, right? And comedians will say, "Come on, baby, we're mishpacha," right? It's like when a, I was in high school, I had a gym teacher who used to say, "It's all right for you. You're a member of the tribe." That's right. <laughs> So I wrote that word mishpacha, and also there's, by the way, uh, the Haredi world, the ultra-Orthodox world, has a magazine just called mishpacha. Sure. Okay. So it has a broad word. I wrote this one word, no period, nothing, wrote mishpacha, sent it out into the ether, and it, and it, it just clicked in, in social media. It just mm. went in Twitter, which is, by the way, Twitter is the ultimate place of narratives, more than even the other social media. Well, and it's why it's such a sort of combative environment. Right. Right, the Twitter wars, the Twitter wars, or the narrative wars, or, or the yeah. X wars, whatever you want to call it. So it right. went it went the far X-wars. and wide, right? And, and and interestingly, though, here's here's the part that I really wanted to get to, which is so that post did well because I was throwing out a narrative where a family, where one people. I wrote even a previous post, which I, I wrote, I wrote, we stand with you here in Israel as you stand with us in America right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, beautiful stuff. Interestingly enough, the comments, and I get a lot of negative comments from the. Pro jihad no. camp, and but here's the here's what they said over and over again. They said the Jews are paying two hundred and fifty dollars for every person to come out, and so this is what two hundred fifty dollars will buy. Wait, you. where's my check? It was, but it was, but it was, it was huge. I saw that it was not a like one person or two people. Right, meaning this was it the had spread as a narrative, yeah. as a meme, as a, as a, as a, as a concept, whatever you want to call it. It spread out that the Jews bought out. These these jobless folks to come out to this rally, which of course builds on a much older narrative, which is that the way Jews exercise power in the world is through money. That's right, that's absolutely right. And so, and that's that that what you just said right now is what I call narrative tree. There's an old tree of narrative way of thinking about Jews that they are obsessed with money, that they work with through just money. That's all they're about. It's all about the Benjamins. The Benjamins. She, as, a, as a congresswoman once said. Now she, she, by the way, is a great narrative warrior. I, I respect my enemies very much. She is an, uh, the, the whole uh, uh, squad, what I call the Jihad squad. Uh, they are awesome, awesome narrative warriors. Well, let's but, talk about but, them for but a second. The bottom, okay, line okay. Is, the bottom line is, I, I'm just finishing up. I made a powerful narrative, which was, this is our family and we're the Jewish people standing together even across the seas. And the instant contra narrative was, you guys are all bought out. It's all about the Benjamins. Yeah. The only thing that holds you together is right. your own personal interest. So there you go. That's narrative war, right there. That's that's, it, and that was that was a war. Yes, and it's and it's one which is being fought out. And in sadly, one wonders often how much crossover there is between the sides. Meaning, I often wonder how much are we preaching to the choir. You tell the stories and people choose. Today, they talk about a a siloed information environment. Everybody's in their social media environment, which reflects back to them. It's well beyond what we used to call uh, confirmation bias, right? That that when you do research, it's a very difficult thing to actually encounter and engage articles that differ from your thesis. 
So they always used to warn us in grad school, beware confirmation bias, make sure you read a diversity of sources, etc. But today, the, the algorithms do it all for you. Right. Well, well, the algorithm can do that. It can give you confirmation bias or silo. It could also do something else, which is, let's say the algorithm is in the hands of somebody who wants to be smart. Who has their own right. narrative right. frame. And so studies are coming out that young people in the United States are seeing pro-Hamas. Ah, well, this is exactly where I wanted to go. Pro-Hamas stop. narratives. Stop right there. Go ahead. Stop right there. Because okay. that's exactly the next question I had here. Baruch Shekavanta, right? Um, there was recently a poll released by, um, by Harvard Harris that said that 51% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 believe that Hamas was justified in their horrific massacres on October 7th. Now, before we get to trying to take that apart, I want to really drive home what that means. Because remember, in today's era of information, these kids on TikTok have been exposed to the videos that Hamas themselves made. This is violence pornography. And I really think that we have to see it as such because Hamas didn't do these things to document themselves for posterity. They didn't do these things to raise their own morale. They knew full well that by documenting them, they would be able to target the Western audiences who would consume this on social media. And it worked. 51% of Americans between 18 and 24, college age, somehow looked at this horrific act and said, yeah, that was justified. And so my question for you is, how, why? How? How does such a thing happen in, in, a, in a world in which, let's remember that these students that, that um, you know, it, should you threaten to trap an endangered bird on campus, they'll have a sit-in. If you, you know, serve general choose chicken in the dining hall, they'll pick it for a cultural appropriation. And yet, I'm not going to repeat what was in those videos. When it's displayed to them, they look at this horrific slaughter of Jews and say, yeah, they had it coming. So um, first, first thing I want to tell you a tiny story, which is I was on campus visiting uh, FSU, Florida State University in Tallahassee uh, about half a year ago. And uh, I talked to the young people there at Chabad, the young Jews on campus, and I kind of was trying to grill them, understand what their situation is like. So they told me that the most seminal event for them in terms of their feeling on campus was Kanye West. When Kanye... Ye made uh, these anti-Jewish comments that did more to change their whole atmosphere than anything else. Why? Because they felt that a lot of young people more in, in the black community were into it. A really cool influencer said crazy things about the Jews that again, there's a bias out there that's built into a lot of Gentiles for different reasons, non-Jews, and certainly in the black community. I was going to say, that, let's remember that one of the great heroes of, of black national liberation, Malcolm X, right. um, was one of the most passionate anti-Semites of black American history. That's right. And, and let's take another guy, which is Desmond Tutu. What he, did a crea he created a very powerful linkage. He had, he had the credentials to create a linkage that said, you see, the Jews of Palestine, the Jews of in, in so-called Israel, are doing the same apartheid as I faced in South Africa, and so he did with with, with those with those credentials. And then on on top of that, Kanye West confirming all those things, 
they basically have a narrative in their head, especially the black community, which is the Jews are white, colonialists, occupiers, and apartheidists. The Muslims and the black the, are the, the Arabs are the black, not so far away from Africa, and they are the ones that are being controlled now by these Jews who took their land. They're basically an offshoot of Western colonialism. But why the age gap? This is what fascinates okay. me. Okay. Because we're talking about, if you looked at that poll, when you got out of the 18 to 24 range, the numbers of people who thought that Hamas's massacre was justified dropped rapidly. It's like getting off the coast and hitting the continental shelf. Okay, so part of that is technical, that uh, the young people are watching this, this TikTok. And TikTok happens to be Chinese-owned. And the Chinese, for one reason or another, which I'm not going to get into now, but they are showing, studies are showing about 10 to 1, Pro Hamas things on TikTok, uh, as opposed to pro Israel stuff. So the, our enemy, meaning they have a specific Israel, narrative that they're that filtering they're through, and and they have this very powerful thing. What I call, I have a nickname for it. Uh, I call it the Almighty Algorithm. Yeah, and 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 if you've ever if you've ever been within the grip of the algorithm, you know that the algorithm is you live and you live and die by the algorithm, right? Like it will squash you as right. much as lift you up, right? <laughs> right. And and you can't break through that algorithm if, if the if the owners of the platform don't want you to, so um, so that's reason number one. Reason number two is that for many years Israel has injected into the ether a weak narrative which has not been effective. And when tell you, me more, what's that all narrative? Right, so so this is a whole can of worms, but basically it's a, throw away, man. Right here comes some worms. Uh, the uh, the the narrative that Israel portrays of itself is of a m- moral army, a, su- a superior army, but a moral one, uh, one that really tries to defend democracy and tries to give the other side as much as possible. And this all sounds nice and good. We're seeing it play out in Shifa Hospital, even Shifa as we speak. Shifa Hospital, as we speak right now. Uh, but that narrative, unbeknownst to our beloved country's leaders is actually working against itself. How so? Because today people want heroes. They want passionate people who are absolutely certain and and cry out with without look at look at the rally that we had yesterday. Our rally was this nice guy rally and the speakers just never broke out of like a certain very uh um we call it in Hebrew mamlachti, very uh how do we official. call it? official official kosher. Nobody broke out. If you go to a Palestine rally, they're flipping out. Well, they're, they're also burning things and rioting. I'm saying I they're don't... rioting, but but rioting equals today in young people's minds passion, and people like passion because people believe that if you're really fired up, that means you got a truth inside. Mm. You got a truth inside, and if you're like if you're like I'm gonna I'm gonna break all the all the vessels here because I, I this is my damn land and and everybody can and I'm willing to fight and die for it. People are like whoa 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 whoa. There's something to that. Now in the West, there's also a great lack of personal inner identity, and that's that's work of the work of postmodernism and progressivism and wokeism that has caused people to not have as much confidence in their in the founding narratives of America or, or Israel or anything like that. And so 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 I'm finishing up a point, which is comes a very passionate, hyper masculine uh, type of type of narrative like jihad. And 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 it it starts to fit into all these pieces. It fits into a classic anti-Semitism. It, it fits into a what we you know the colonialism thing. It fits into all these things, the and then it white touches versus brown. white versus brown. 
and also it it has it has a aggressive passion as opposed to a kind of ninny-ish, soft, uh, not very um, passionate type of Israeli. Like we're moral and we're gonna and the the bias goes the, ironically the other way, which is like if Israel's letting these guys pray on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, for example, then therefore it must be that the other side's got a truth. So there's a, there's a very important piece here that I, I want to sort of dig down on for a second because, you know, on one hand, you and I have spoken about this idea that, that in the intellectual West, nothing is more anathema than certainty. But that's that postmodern relativism that, that everything is, is subjective and, and there's multi-narrative discourse and, and, and everything is sort of held at arm's length. And, and the intellectual world values complexity and, and, and really sort of sneers at certainty. At the same time, what you're pointing out is that there is, that has left a gap, what I might call a moral vacuum. And and a, a, I don't mean moral in the high sense. I mean the, moral in the most visceral sense. That the people still need to feel things are right and wrong, right? And and when you have so muddied the intellectual waters, that especially you know, of course, it, we didn't point it out explicitly, but that a huge percentage of the respondees to this poll between ages eighteen and twenty four are in American colleges, right? Where so much of the sort of like virulent anti semitism is now welling up. So you're in the intellectual waters where, where on one hand, people sneer at certainty and, and, and uh, all the intellectual underpinnings, history, uh, even science to some degree, have been sort of cast as a relative pursuit. But you're left with a desire for solid ground and suddenly emerges a moral contest. And there, it's the passion that proves the right. Your willingness to break things, to burn things, right. and what I'm thinking about now is, um, you know, back in 2014, there was a perfect storm of narrative warfare that occurred. What happened in 2014? Let's, let's see what's on top of your mind. What, when I say 2014. Do you think? You're like, oh, how old are my kids right now? Okay, I mean, it wasn't a fair question. You know, here in Israel, most people, of course, think of the previous major round. I can't remember the name of the operation. There've been so many. There might have been no affair. No, that Cat was, it was no, no. It was um, Shomer no, no. It was no Tsuketan. Tsuketan. I don't remember what the it was in English, but it doesn't matter. Right. It was it was after the three boys were kidnapped and right. murdered, and, and uh, the last major ground incursion before the present one into Gaza. But people often forget that that was also the same summer in America of the Ferguson, Missouri riots. There was all police violence and, and eruption of, of violence. In many ways, the Black Lives Matter movement was born out of that unrest in 2014. And there emerged at the time a notion of from Ferguson to Gaza. Right. Right. That there was a, a, a union. And the union lay in... There's a word for it, which is intersectionality. Well, it's, it's intersectionality is the intellectual piece, but this is not what I'm after. What I'm after is, is how do you... I mean, it's a big leap. Right. It's a big leap to speak about, you know, um, priest brutality, assuming it's as bad as, as, as people are experiencing it. I'll just assume it's as bad as it gets. You're still in a, in a country which, with foundational democratic principles and citizenship, whereas in Gaza, we're talking about a war between two nations. It's a, it's a completely different situation. Nonetheless... The leap there had a lot to do with the sense of we want to unleash violence against the system. 
Right. Well, I was going to say I was going to say that the the before we talked about we want to feel justified doing it. We, we were talking about strong identity versus a, a soft identity and people yearning for an identity. But there's another yearning, which is what you're pointing out to now, which is actually chaos. And chaos is a deep-seated yearning in a lot of people, especially people who are to some extent self-loathing. This is a term that I picked up uh, from the True Believer a great book and and self-loathing is when you basically feel empty inside you one of the things you want to do is you want to bring down the world as it is now the jews happen to stand for a world of principles okay it's 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 a in fact in fact like if you want to look at like like the jews symbolize god in this world sexual morality uh, you know, and, 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 and wherever they go, they become bourgeois, i.e. they start to build up a society and a life built on family. Institutional, that's right. So, so when, you, when you're on campus and you've got that tendency, you're not married yet. Uh, the American campus has unleashed the physical pleasures and on top of that, the... It's what Ben Shapiro calls transgressivism. Yeah. It's a philosophy where there's a value in breaking the rules. Right. That's right. That's All right. of them. That's right, and 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 especially places like Colombia, where it's got that history in there, uh, and so, and so uh, Israel is seen now, and then Israel paints itself as not as a tribal people, you know, and a, a tiny ethnic minority, an armed ethnic minority on its land. It paints itself exactly in those colors of this like institutional, very neat and tidy, neat tidy, uh, uh, antiseptic, a little bit. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When the hospital is supposed to be, uh, yeah, you know, sterile, else, sterile, right? And there's something kind of sterile about it. It's kind of it's very par of middle of the road. Just like that conference yesterday, a lot of people speaking like this and giving exactly the truth. And it's like, okay, you know, it's it's an almost a soft target. It becomes a soft target for people who are either looking to empower the jihad because they like its what I call the real toxic masculinity, or they like it for its chaotic mm-hmm. uh, uh, elements. And and now and there's a third component which is so important, which is the bad guys. In my mind, the bad guys, they work hard on narrative war. They work very hard to empower those professors, to make those videos, and to create narrative consciousness. In fact, some people are saying that this current war is really not so much of either a land war or a terror war. It's much more to get Israel to kill a lot of so-called innocent civilians so that Israel will become more isolated. And just today, I saw that little countries like Belize and Chile and these places are suspending diplomatic relations. And, and so, and so there's, a, there's a victory. I spoke to a friend of mine, a Muslim from Morocco. He says, yeah, there's a ton of hate for Israel right now. And, and there was a different narrative that was being formed by the Trump administration, which was called the Abraham Accords. Brilliant term. And, that the, and the Makib Apatish, the final great Whoa. strike of the Abraham Accords, was the mother of all Muslim countries, Saudi Arabia, starting to come to a rapprochement with, with the Jews. No, that's definitely And so, in and the so Iran right is like, so Iran was like, Iran and cohorts were like, we must stop this. And the way we're going to do this is by isolating Israel. How are we going to do that? We have to get them to, we're going to make a horrific strike. Israel is going to have to strike back. That strike back is going to be horrendous. And we're going to lose a lot of civilians. But within that, the longer term vision is we're going to isolate Israel. Israel is going to be more detached from the world. And of course, Saudi Arabia is not going to be able to back Israel, who's now killing Palestinians at whim, according to that narrative. Okay. So so th- my point is, is that they, 
they, the Russians thinking, the Chinese thinking, the Iranian thinking, these guys think about narrative war seriously. They really follow what young people in America think. They think about the stuff. We don't. Okay, we're, we're, we Israelis, we, we have a very narrow pass of what we think the world is. Hasbara. We got yeah. to sell ourselves, but we don't have to have a sophisticated, proactive, coherent projection of who we are, frankly, because as Jews, we can't even agree on that ourselves. That's right. So I'll give, I'll give you an example that happened today. Today, today I was getting, getting a talk from the uh, Central Command in the Army. And one of the things they were really concerned about was so-called settler violence. Now, they're, they're like, we admit it's almost nothing. It's .000. It's so small. But even when one person commits settler violence, it completely destroys our relationship with America. So I'm like, these are all narratives. You're, 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 you're stuck in concepts and narratives. Maybe you want to say, hey, we got, we got young people defending their land from jihadist uh, uh, incursions. And yeah, our people are out there to defend. We're going to push back, and and you know our people are. Uh, we're not pacifists around here, and we're going to back our people because because that's the kind of country where we're a post Holocaust, itchy trigger finger, badass little Jewish state, and you better not mess with us. But like they are not ready for that kind of narrative. So it's interesting that you note that because uh, we've had a bit of that discussion in my house. I say discussion because it hasn't always been calm, uh, and my kids are of the generation here who are are ready to fight. They're ready to fight. And um, when the violence first broke out and the uh, sort of hilltop youth who see themselves really as the guardians of the spaces that, that in, in Yudan Shomron that, that Israel has largely abandoned, right? They started to put out videos saying, yeah, don't mess with us. Right. We're coming for you, right? And, and I remember part of me was revolted. It's not who we are. We're not vigilantes. You know, but as things began to unfold, I realized, well, first of all, that is a very strong narrative in my mind. Uh, second of all, we need deterrence. But more than anything else, what I saw in my children was a pride in the ability of Jews, not just, oh, we've, we've gained the ability to defend ourselves, but that's who we are. We're people who are not to be messed with. Right. And, 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 and that is a perfectly excellent narrative, one that was shared by the original Maccabees. One was that was shared by King David. One was shared by, by, by all kinds of people throughout time, which is the Jew is not somebody to trifle with. Well, and it was shared by someone else, and I want to share a quote with you, which, which often troubles me in light of the emphasis that we're placing on narrative war, and I share your belief in its importance. It's a quote by Ben-Gurion, who is another person who believes that the Jews shouldn't be messed with. You know? And he famously said in, in, in regards to the United Nations – which is like a whole realm that maybe we could go to, maybe not. Um, he says, what matter isn't what the non-Jews say, but what the Jews do. Now, doesn't that undermine the importance of narrative warfare altogether? I mean, on some level, do you ever feel like maybe we're just giving too much credence to a bunch of teenagers on TikTok and, uh, and some sort of overpaid tenured professors who you know are the most privileged people on planet Earth? Let's just remember that. If you're a professor or a student at an Ivy League university in the United States, you're at the pinnacle of privilege in the world and so to, therefore to sort of preach about the righteousness of the struggle and the oppressed is a a little bit suggestive of some internal issues maybe it should just be dismissed maybe this whole narrative warfare piece is a red herring and we should just simply do what needs to be done okay so l l let me parse it out uh, uh, in large measure i even agree with that 
narrative war does not necessarily mean that we have to fight narrative war. It means uh, uh, understand what is being arraigned against you. First thing is is understand the the theater of operations. Know your uh, enemy. Right. No, know what's going on. Understand what's going on, what they're trying to do. So understand now that TikTok and CNN and all these players are actually engaged in narrative war. A decision that you say, I don't care what you guys are saying, is a battle in narrative war. It's just that you're saying, I recognize your your trick, your 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 what you're trying to do to me, and I'm aware of it. I'm going to turn off the tube, and I'm going to turn off the tube and do what I need. That is an that is a narrative war effort. It's just it, it's 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 a type of armor. It's a type of armor in war. You're like, I am now armed against that. I understand what you're doing. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm going to kick you. I'm going to kick the media out of the country. I'm going to shut down cellular service because I don't want, you know, Gaza to, to, to broadcast it out. So that is narrative war. It means to say, I understand what, what your, what your tools of war are. And I'm going to deprive you of them, deprive you of them. And I'm not going to pay attention to much of them. I'm not going to become the guy who really, really wants to make sure that the American government likes me. Exactly. Maybe I actually want a different narrative. Maybe I want them to think that I am, that I am uh, a fierce a nation that dwells alone, right? A nation that dwells alone. That I'm fierce, and that and that you don't trifle with the Jews. That kind of thing. That is a narrative. Another aspect of that is that what I just said now is a narrative internally. To say I don't care what you're saying is a is a posture. It's a mental posture. It's a narrative. It's an internal narrative, which is you 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 use the term just now. A nation that dwells alone. Where did that come from? Well, that's a Torah term. That's a Torah term. comes from our greatest enemy in the Torah. Okay, but he, but 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 but, but he that saw is a, well. But you invoked when I was talking about you invoked a narrative, which is there is this phrase. This phrase is something about me and how I approach the world. I'm a nation that dwells alone. That's also a narrative war. So we pause for a second because I want to clarify there that, that really what you're pointing out is that the primary battlefield for a narrative is one's inner consciousness, and and that like you said, if narratives are are what get you up out of bed in the morning. That, that the battle that everyone needs to really fight is clarifying, well, who are we as a people? What is it that we're attempting to accomplish in the world today? And, and what's our vision that's driving us? And once you do that, so you can engage on TikTok and CNN and whatnot, or not. Or not. Right. And then, and then another aspect of it is, what actually do people like? Okay. What do you mean? Okay. So I ask a question of my friends on the left always. I say to them, I'm just asking you a scientific question, which is, when was Israel liked more? The day after the Six-Day War or the day after the Oslo Accords? And the answer is, the day after the Six-Day War, our, our no image in the world went up and up and up. And the day after the Oslo Accords, just to remind folks listening, is when we gave away parts of our land, created Nominally a Palestinian authority. Made peace with our enemies. But, but mostly by, by letting terrorists take over our land and then thereby right. facing wars. As opposed to victory in So then, from then on, people just started seeing us as weak, spineless, giving away our land. So I'm always saying one of the narratives is Israel is strong knows its borders, pushes back on jihadism, and people will like you better. And this is a mistake that liberals or progressives make all the time. As people actually like you better when you are cocksure of yourself and aggressive and clear about what your land is and what you're, what, you know, what you're doing. And so that's also, these are, all, these are all narratives. So one narrative is, I don't care what you're going to say because I know my truth. But ironically is when you take that stance, that's actually a good narrative. People like that. People respect that. That's why they respect Hamas today. Because, sickly enough, Hamas 
is seen as really sure of itself, oh, yes. willing willing to do crazy things for whatever their vision, their ideology is. And there's the other stuff that we talked about, chaos and, 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 mas- and hyper-masculinity, yes, but the bottom line is, is that they are very clear about their goal, and it's a total goal. It's a clear and total goal. And our goals are oftentimes half goals. We're like, no, Jerusalem is our eternal capital, but the other people have a mosque up there, so that's really important because we're also people that lets other people pray. And this, So our, our narrative sounds unclear, ninny-ish, is not compact into a tight sentence. You can't make an elevator pitch out of it. Theirs is. Uh, and what you said, the other side of it, which is to recognize that, that, that the other side that maybe we want to, don't want to listen to them, that we want to portray ourselves as, as tough and badass and all that, that's also a narrative, and I think a much more successful one. You know, I can't avoid noting that there is an inherent complexity and diversity of perspective within Judaism. Meaning, we're people, aside from all the jokes about, you know, two Jews, three opinions, and etc., but um, one of the foundational aspects of rabbinic thought, which for the last, you know, let's give it 20, 2,500 years, right, has been an essential aspect, a central vessel for our spiritual being, is machloket, right? Is, is we would call it constructive conflict, right? So, so therefore, is it really possible for the Jews to project an elevator pitch and the type of fanatical clarity i mean it's it's all well and good and i understand what you mean about that clarity but that that clarity is um empty and soulless in many ways because it has only one voice we're a multivocal people how as a multivocal people people who don't just value in the abstract diversity but actually as a lived experience and let's not forget of course that 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 um <laughs> literally the week before our enemies ripped a chunk out of the body of Israel, we were fighting each other in the streets. Part of that was, I would say, a constructive conflict. And part of it is the other side, which is the hatred between Jews, that tribalism that goes over the edge. But I think no one would deny that, that a diversity of perspective is almost inherent to the Jewish people. So what are we meant to do with that in light of the sort of, um, value that you're placing in narrative warfare on the ability to project clarity to the world so that's a great question and and the reason it's a good question is because it's actually um a problem that we face in narrative war and that we we just don't speak with one voice with one clarity and we don't have what's called in in the pr world message discipline we are not the people of message discipline <laughs> and we're about as far from that right we're, we're not people, people of message discipline and and that's why a lot of times we reach out to the lowest common de- denominator for message discipline, and that brings out a weak message because we're not we're not we're we're coming down to something we could all agree on, you know, just fighting Hamas. So okay, we can agree to that, and not the bigger problem. Just be clear that meaning avoiding the fact that jihadism, that Hamas is a is a, an arm of a much larger larger phenomenon. Yeah, and that the PLOPA is the same exact thing, and that jihadism is spread to to Israeli Arab cities, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yes, the Jewish people are a people of dialogue, discourse, um, and and our central book really is the Talmud, which is a book that every page is filled with disagreements and arguments. And so that doesn't make for a great message discipline. On the other hand, I'm not, I, I'm not really. Yeah, <laughs> you realize yeah, what you just did. Yeah. 
And people could have just seen the look on your yeah. face. And a hand went up. You're on the other. <laughs> on the other hand, what I'm offering here is is not something that really needs to be much disagreed upon because we're talking about something that's actually pretty plain. And here you have to put on your, you have to have as a Jew and as a and as a person in the Middle East, you have to have different gears. And so one gear is this what you described this this Jew of discourse and dialect. But then there's another uh, gear which is the Jew as a Middle Eastern person. And the simple fact is the Jews have a right to and every peoples in this region, the tribes, have a right to safe borders and not to have Nazism, jihadism within their borders and not to have people pull out a gun and put it to your head. There's really no need to debate that question. No Jews really want guys with AK-47s raping and murdering our peoplehood. And so... And so there's certain things that you can agree on. They're the things that they're the the book can be full of disagreements, but the fact that the book has hardcover on on both sides of it is is something that you really need to make the book have the rest of the disagreements. And so I'm not talking about I'm not talking about ending our discussion about the how much religion and state should meet. I'm talking about bad guys are in your land. They are working to undermine your Jewish state. And so let's identify them and let's fight with them. Uh, let's 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 push them out and not have them do not uh, not allow stupid things to happen like having our enemies train right before our very eyes or dig tunnels underneath of our cities. That's just dumb. Giving away your land in the Middle East to your enemies is dumb, and it and it it does not work. And so we don't need to argue about that. Uh, oftentimes when I meet my leftist friends, I say, let's keep debating about how much socialism we should have or how much education or how much solar energy we should have. But let's not debate the question of giving away our land to enemies because that's dumb. And so, and so yes, we should have and, – and simple bodily defense used to have a simple term that we did agree on. It was called never again. And I think we could come back. We should come. We need to come back to that. The rest, yeah, you know what I mean? It's all open for discussion. But there's certain things that are like your, your, your basic, your, your basic, your, your basic self-defense, your basic right to self-defense. And we, we have now been struck so hard. Our very core, our very core sense of, of the safety of our day-to-day has been, as we say in Hebrew, how do we say that in English? Shaken. Shaken. And, and, and 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 our trust in our intelligence service and in the army it's all been shaken very deeply and we have a we we i don't like to say we have a right we we must we have fight. a duty we have a duty we must fight and 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 if you want to argue with me about that then i have a, my you know the final line on that which is if we don't take care of business and don't push back on our enemies and disarm them in every way possible then all we're doing is we're not debating and discussing. We're simply passing it to our children to fight. My children will be coming of age to be in the army. My my boy, uh, you know, in 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 six years, and and I know that given the way we're doing it right now, the the Lebanon problem and others, the jihadism in our land, the no go zones, the jihadism education in the schools, the blaring of the mosques with jihadism, all these things will be in his lifetime, and he'll have to face it, even a more intractable, harsher, more dug-in enemy. And so, okay, sometimes you have to, there are times, and that's called leadership, where you have to pause on the big debate of, uh, you know, the, the, the big Jewish discourse and be like, okay, but this is the minimum. We, we Never again, we have a right to live in safety. So, I mean, I hear two things here. One is, 
um, there's a sense that the the culture of constructive conflict and that that living discourse, which is really the heart of Torah, um, needs to also come home to the embodied reality of what it is to be an ethnic minority in the Middle East. And if we're not willing to build a container that can safely hold that discourse, meaning hold the walls and, and, and drive out from our midst the evil, then that discourse won't continue. And together with that, I hear uh, kind of an adaption of a saying that they, it's tossed around in the environmental movement. Nobody really knows who said it, but they say that the, you know, that the environment isn't something that we inherit from our ancestors. It's something that we borrow from our grandchildren. Hmm. So in, in, in a sense, you're saying the same thing, is that right now we're in our land and we're borrowing it from our grandchildren. And we have a duty, an obligation to them to do what needs to be done in order to secure it, in order that they can inherit it from us in a way in which will really bring the glory of our peoplehood and the Torah that we were meant to spread in the world. And that order and light, as you said, that stands against the chaos and evil that so many of our enemies gleefully uphold as their banner. So, you know, a, a last question before we wrap it up. Um, it's going to be tangential, but it's. It, it, by, the yeah. way, by the way, when you when you, I, I love that term. I love that environmentalist term. I, I want you to know that, like, I always when you start talking this way, it evokes very much to me uh, Noah's Ark. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's like the world was taken by chaos. That chaos, the word in the Torah for that was Hamas. It's an <laughs> ironic thing. Yeah. Hamas t is in the world, and this 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 kind of like the light of order was in Noah and he got to save the world that that's Israel Israel is here to kind of be that 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 ark that that defensive thing that that and 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 I, and I want to tell you that um sometimes sometimes Israel is like a Beit HaMikdash is like a temple and it's got a light to share with the world but other times it's like an ark like a Noah's ark where it kind of goes inside of itself defends itself until the storm passes and right now we've got a darkness in the world and we've got to defend ourselves, make sure that the storm passes. Then we will, the, the ark will settle again and the, the light of Israel will come out. So, so good. I want to I end on the note of call, a call to action um, because right now I'm in the midst of uh, the pre-launch of the new project for me, the Jewish Heroism Project. And as that, I've developed a definition for, for Jewish Heroism, which is Mesirut Nefesh the Ma'an Tov. Right? Mm -hmm. A, a, a a going beyond one's limited self for the sake of the good. We'll just leave it at that. So as someone who has spent literally decades in, in every uh, environment imaginable, on every type of media platform, physical, virtual, or otherwise, fighting the narrative war, what is it the average person can do to go beyond themselves, even the, old, the slightest bit, in order to bring this war to fruition and really spread the tove, the goodness that we're meant to do? So my, my good friend Eugene Kantorovich, you know, always tells me that a, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Yeah. And uh, we, have, uh, we have a crisis right now. And crisis and, and Ruff Cook, you know, brings out the crisis or war is a time where the light of Mashiach uh, 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 comes into the world. This, there's a horrific crisis now. It's actually bigger than we understand it. That's what I think. I think it's bigger. And I, I, know in my, I even think that it's bigger than I understand it. That's, that's my, my, my gut feeling. And... Um, and this crisis uh, is one that it, that the, the foundations of the state of Israel are shaking. Interestingly enough, Noam Arnon, my Dr. Noam Arnon, my, my colleague in Hebron, showed me that in the Sephardic sitters, it says that that we pray for Mashiach, but we have to be careful that the 
Mashiach ben Yosef will not be killed at the end of times. Mm-hmm. I think what that means is that the state of Israel and secular Zionism that founded the state is leaving the scene, but we've got to make sure that doesn't totally crack. It's not a collapse. Right, that, it's, that, it's an, that we evolve. Remembering that one of the visions of Mashiach the sages had is that there'll be no two stones standing for a thousand years and it'll be plenty quiet. Right. <laughs> uh, we we want to be we want to make sure that I'd like that to be around happen. to see it. Right. Let's we well, we want to transition into a Davidic period and and ironically, ironically, I think that your question is is spot on. But ironically, why? Because a lot of times people feel like, what can I do in this big battle? The truth is, it's actually a battle on the individual level. It's actually every person is going to be an important player right now. So everything that you can do from First thing is teach the, your kids the narrative. You know, have Jewish kids, teach them the narrative. Okay? Learn Torah. Learn Torah. And I tell, and whenever I speak with my non-Jewish friends, I always say to them, "You guys are all products of one simple thing: a mama who taught you the Bible." And and they're and they're always like, "You're right." I'm, you know what I mean? And so, mamas, teach your kids the Bible. Teach our story. And teach don't let them grow up to be cowboys. <laughs> teach our story. They could they could be maybe uh, Jewish cowboys. They could be uh, West Bank cowboys. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, te- so teach the narrative. And then out there, strength, if, it, let's say, for example, if you have a kid in America that's going to go to college, well, don't send him to a, a college where he's going to be brainwashed. Send her to a, to a, a place where, where she's going to be strengthened, okay? Make sure there's either an excellent Chabad or not a lot of anti-Semitism. I don't know what, Yeshiva University. But think or about even that better. as much as the academic standards. That's right. That's right. So, so that's very serious because your kid has been invested so much into, and now, now to lose her, it's, it would be a, a horrible shame. Send her to the right place. Okay, uh, uh, right now let's strengthen our Judaism. I was on a show in in New York just now, a talk show, and the guy's like, "I'm, you know, I'm nominally Jewish, but this thing has made me into a prouder Jew than I ever been. I never go to synagogue. I'm going to two shuls this Shabbat." He told me on the radio. He says this, and I was like, "Yes, that's a great spirit." You know, we have to strengthen our Judaism right now. We have to strengthen it. We have to marshal our resources. I'm helping bring a whole Yeshiva University student group next week to the land of Israel. They're coming as as real volunteers, and 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 they raise the money. And this is going to change our life because they're going to come in in, in, in this moment. And then take baby steps. Take 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 the steps. I say, like you know, drink wine from the land of Israel, and and say lechaim to it. Here in Israel, a, a bigger the bigger challenge is um, is that we've got to start to we've we've we we can't just put a, a band aid on this thing right now. We've got to let it crack some more, and then and heads have got to roll, and we've got to create a sea change where we see things a little bit differently. And so I say right now that all of us have to do two forms of tshuva, two forms of repentance. One is the simple one, which is a little bit more God in your life, more Sabbath, more unity. And I'm going to say something which is not popular, which is a little bit more a proper dress. Let's let's bring ourselves up a little bit. Jabotinsky's notion of hadar. Yes, a, yes. a certain dignity yes. and nobility. Yes, very much. I've, I've felt that. I've felt that this is important now. We have to come back to being a, a holy people a little bit. Uh, so there's tshuva. Unity is maybe the biggest one of them all in tshuva. But Shabbat has become an important thing, I think, through this process. I don't want to get into it, but Shabbat, uh, uh, unity, and uh, as Meaning you say, hadar. Take action on the personal level. Right. A, a, as a Jew. That's what I'm saying. The whole thing, the, everyone is in this war right now. And the other one is tshuva of stopping to do stupid things 
No more letting our enemies practice right in front of our eyes and digging underneath tunnels. No more allowing UNRWA to teach Arab kids jihadism. We've got to stop doing stupid things. If our enemies are building rockets and we know about it, we've got to stop them. We've got to call on our government. No more stupid things. No more allowing our enemies to take No more take heads over. in the sand. No more heads in the sand. And if, this, if the mosque is, if mosque is blaring jihad, if the school books that the Arab kids are reading is jihadist, if, the ra- if there's a radio TV station that's pushing out jihadism out of Ramallah, we got to close that down. we got to be real about that. And finally, within the narrative war, we've got to embrace a strong Jewish narrative, recognize that the other narratives are trying to weaken us, and broadcast our narrative without without needing having a great need to suck up and make sure that everybody likes us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a fine line there. Sure, broadcast the narrative, give people strength, bring people that are on our side in, but don't pander. Don't pander. Don't do it because that's that itself is a very weak narrative. So those are three directions I think, and I think every single one of us are, is in this war. I think other people have said, it, and it's true, we're all soldiers right now. Well, listen. There's your call to action. That going beyond your limits can happen as a more Jewish life, as a more engaged narrative life, and most importantly, like you said, as you know, sticking together with one another and being a whole people. Yishai Fleischer, international spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron and narrative warrior extraordinaire and good friend. Thank you so much for taking the time. If people want to know more about the work you do, where should they go? com or just type in Yishai Fleischer. Don't even spell it right because Google will do it for you. That's right. You'll probably get a bunch of nasty comments as well. Don't worry. You'll find me there and, <laughs> and I'm on social media out there and uh, and uh, doing my part to, to podcast, uh, to, to get out the message. Uh, and of course, I always welcome people to visit us uh, at uh, in Hebron at the, at the foundations of our narrative, the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs, which is always under the gun, but such a special place that really gives you a shot of uh, of 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 uh, the narrative of our people. It is the oldest story after all. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Rav Mike Foyer. I want to call people to check out the brand new website. Splash page just came up, jewishheroism.com. Get a sense of what's coming. I want to thank the Pardes Institute for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. They're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of the Judean mountains. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project.